when John the Baptist was, uh, was preaching at the Jordan River and the Pharisees came out and they said, are you that prophet? Have you ever read that? You know that script? That, that's speaking about a specific prophet that the, the Jews were looking for. Old Testament that Moses prophesied about that there's going to be this prophet who's going to do my will. He's going to do everything I tell him to do. And that wasn't Elijah or Elisha or one of the other prophets. So they were godly men. That was speaking of Jesus Christ. That prophet. That's why when the, the Jews questioned uh, John, they said, are you that prophet? And he says, I am not. Okay? But then when he sees Jesus, he says, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He doesn't only cover our sins. He does cover our sins, but He does more. He does what the blood of bulls and goats could never do. He washes us clean. He gives us a clean heart and a clean conscience. And He takes the laws of God. I'm not necessarily saying the laws of Moses, the Levitical law, but the moral law of God, which is unchangeable, I believe. And He writes that in our hearts and He writes it in our minds. And so it's very near. It's actually part of it. It's, it's imparted to us. And, and then um, He enables us by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, by the new life. It is a new life. It is a new birth, and a new birth results in a new life. And this new life can please God. Amen? It's only as the Lord lives through us. If, I'm, if I uh, drift off here in my flesh, in my own carnal self-will, or whatever it may be, then I'm not going to be pleasing God. But a life of faith pleases God and a life in the Spirit pleases God. And it's not impossible. It's impossible if you don't know Jesus, but it is possible, right? Uh, all things are possible to them that believe. And so everything about Jesus is better. And up until this point, and, and we're about halfway through chapter 10, you can turn there in Hebrews, everything has been very doctrinal. It's been comparing and contrasting the old a new covenant, the old sanctuary and, the, and the, uh, the priesthood and the sacrifices and all that, which we've gone into great detail about. And the author has gone into great detail about. But really from about what we're starting to study tonight through the end of this book, which is there's 13 chapters, um, it's more of warnings and exhortations. There's warnings and exhortations. It's not going to be as, as much doctrinal as an appeal. Wherefore? You know, seeing that that these things uh, are true, seeing that our priest is a great high priest, seeing that the blood of Jesus has done what it's done for us and cleansed us, seeing that he's our, our intercessor, it's exhorting us to continue on. You know, everything about the Christian faith, I say it all the time, I remind myself all the time, and the Bible is very clear, it's always about pressing on. There's going to be a rest that comes, but we're not there yet. There is a rest in our souls now in knowing Jesus, okay? That we're not anxious wondering if we're going to go to heaven. We're not anxious if our sins are forgiven. Am I really saved? Am I really child of God? That's put to bed. That's put to rest. Um, the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we belong to Him. That we're children of God. And in our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So we know we belong to Him. But as far as the the wrestling against the God of this world and sin and temptations and heartaches and afflictions and trials and tribulations, that's, that's not over yet, okay? So we are encouraged by the Word of God to press on, to keep on, to keep on, to keep on. And so we're just not there yet. We're going to get there. And we have the promise that we're going to get there. And so this, this epistle 
as many others, but what we're going to look at tonight as well is, is an encouragement or an exhortation to continue on. Don't give up. It doesn't matter how tired you are. The Lord will strengthen us. I always think about Elijah when he had called down fire from heaven. And you know the story, and we've talked about it, the account where he called down fire from heaven and there was that great victory and the 850 prophets of Baal were killed and the people of Israel confessed, the Lord, He's God, the Lord, He's God. It was a true turning point in the, the history of the nation at that moment. And it was great glory to God and, and a fulfillment of just, just display of God's power. But when the next day Jezebel puts a death threat on the man of God, Elijah and says, you're going to be like those prophets of Baal by this time tomorrow. And he runs for his life and he's scared. Guess what? He's tired. He's afraid. He's tired. It happens. It happens to the best of men and women of God. The Lord's faithful. He didn't say, okay, Elijah, since you're tired and you didn't trust me, you're afraid of a woman after all the great power I've displayed for you and through you. He didn't just abandon him. He went, he left his servant behind. He went a day's journey out into the wilderness, sat up under a juniper tree and requested of himself that he might die. You ever been there? Lord, just let me die. Please, just grant me this one wish. Okay? Let me die. It's enough now. And he fell asleep. And God wasn't done with him. He was a man of God. He belonged to the Lord. Even his name, the Lord is Jehovah. Or Jehovah is Lord. That's what Elijah means. And he stood before the Lord continually. stood in the presence of God. He was a man of God. And he was having a weak moment. Well, God doesn't have weak moments, but His people do. And He's able to strengthen us and help us. It could be a season where we're really feeling weak. You might have been Christian for 20 years and now you're feeling weaker than you ever had. God's bringing you through a test and trial. He's going to bring you through. The man fell asleep under the tree. When he woke up, an angel had brought some, some bread and some water. And he says, rise and eat this. And so he eats the bread and he drinks the water. He falls asleep again. And he wakes up again, and the same thing. There's more food that the angel has provided and water. And he says, eat this and drink this, for the journey is too great for you. And I'm encouraged by that. You know what he's telling? He's telling him, that I have a lot more for you to do. A dead man's not getting ready to go on a journey, right? He's got something for the man to do. It might seem like it come to an end, but God had something for him to do, and he had great things for him to do. And so he went, he ate and he drank and he went in the strength of that heavenly food for 40 days. That's not natural. He went in the strength of that food, and I'm assuming that drink as well, that water, for 40 days until the Mount of Horeb where God met him and spoke to him. What am I saying? All through the Bible, God is provoking his people on. He's spurring us on. He's stirring us on. He's moving us on. And, and, uh, so let's just read this in Hebrews chapter uh, 10. And we're going to pick up in verse 19. Now this, these few, first few verses are going to be a review. But then we're going to get up to new material in verse 24. So verse 19, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, His flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. And remember that that little phrase about holding fast our profession, that has been uh, just off the top of my head at least the third or fourth time in, in Hebrews that little phrase is used. What does it mean to hold fast our profession? It means be steadfast. Don't give up. Hold fast your profession. Your profession is, when I looked that up in, in the, the Bible dictionary, it talks about your terms of surrender. Our profession is that we came to the Lord and we confessed Him and we professed Him as being Lord and Savior. Hold on to that. Hold on to that. That's where I surrendered to the Lord. And those terms of surrender is He's God and I'm not. I'm a sinner saved by the grace of God and I needed Him when He saved me and I need Him all the way through. And that's the terms of my surrender. I don't come to some point where I choose another way or another path or another route or get confident in myself or enabled by myself. It's always going to be holding fast that profession. And it says, for He is faithful, that promise. Because God's faithful. Okay? We can hold fast our profession because the Lord's faithful. Now let's keep moving on here tonight. This is some new verses that we did not cover last week. And we're going to read 24 and 25. It says, And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and all the much more as you see the day approaching. And so, you know what? It's not just about me. It's not just about me. It's not just that I'm doing okay with Jesus. The Bible says we are to consider one another. That is a consideration that we are to have. We are to consider our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And there's three things that are mentioned in the the verses that we've read. We're to draw near, we're to hold fast, and we're to consider one another. Draw near, hold fast our profession, and consider one another. Uh, Matthew Henry says, Watch over one another's another with a godly jealousy. This is the best friendship. I like the way you put that. Watch over one another with a godly jealousy. This is the best friendship. And you know, it's, it's not always uh, easy. It's not always necessarily popular to really be involved in someone's life to that level. You know what I mean? This is why a lot of people want to go to a mega church. I'm not saying that all mega churches are bad. I'm simply saying this is one reason a lot of people want to go there because they're not accountable to anyone. Nobody notices if, notices if they're there or not. They don't notice if they're doing well with the Lord. They don't have people that get under, like D always says, get in their skin a little bit. But you know what? God would have us to be in each other's skin. There's a respectful way to do it. There's a godly way to do it. There's a prayerful way to do it. There's a humble way to do it. There's a spirit-led way to do it. There's a biblical way to do it. But, but God has given us each other. And, and whoever He's going to add to this fellowship. Okay, and other Christians you know that aren't part of this fellowship. That we can consider one another. And it says specifically here, to provoke unto love and good works. We think of provocation or provoking typically as not, as not a good thing. You know, like a little baby brother's provoking his older brother, sticking him in the back of the head with a pencil or something. You know, over and over and over. Peter still does that to William. Uh, over and over. Um, 
and we think of that, you know, somebody finally turns around and socks them, you know, because they provoke them to anger. Well, we could provoke to anger, but that's not what's talked about here. It's provoking, it means to, to prick or to stir on or spur on or urge on, but it says specifically to love and good works, to love and good works. Love would be the, the root and good works would be the fruit of our walk with the Lord. And God would use us in that way. That's a good thing. Whether you're teaching a Sunday school class, whether you're watching little kids in the nursery, whether you're picking up the phone and saying, hey, you know, whoever, I haven't seen you in a while. I've been missing you. How are you doing? Okay, let's get together for lunch. Why don't you come early tonight? We'll pray together for 15 minutes. We care. We're considering. I know you have extremely busy schedules, extremely busy lives, but God would have us to consider one another. He would have us to prefer one another. It's important. You ought to look around this room and pray for the people in this room. Put them on your prayer list and pray for them. Not just these, but others as well. But this is who God has knitted our lives together in this church and in this fellowship. And so uh, our church attendance, he says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. That means that there are some that is their manner. There's always been those that that's their manner. They forsake the assembly together of the saints of God. They, they forsake it. They abandon it. They're stranger to the house of God when they ought not to be. It doesn't mean we can never miss church. God shows us that in our, in our hearts. But He says, all but exhorting one another, and the much more as you see the day approaching. That day approaching is the, the rapture of the church. Because y'all, it could be very soon that we're we're talking here, and the next moment we might be standing looking at Jesus face to face. That's a reality, and we're told to live with that reality. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. But it's also, in addition to a good thing, it's a sobering thing, and it's supposed to to be that. It should have that effect upon our lives of seriousness. Not that we can't laugh and tease and joke, but a seriousness about what am I doing here. What is my purpose in being here? It ought to be about the Lord. Jesus said, I must be about my Father's business, right? And we ought to be about our Father's business. And part of that, which He has chosen for His people to do, is to provoke one another to love and good works. So we're to consider that because if we don't, y'all, it's going to lead to abandoning the faith. It can lead to abandoning the faith. If I had a practice of forsaking the assembling of myself together with other believers. When God has called me to that, okay? God doesn't have... Uh, you just don't see it in the, in the New Testament especially that there are lone, lone ranger Christians. It's not that you can't be saved and live by yourself. It's that if God has placed you in a church, He's given you that for a reason. He... he uh, descended and then He ascended and He led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. That fivefold ministry that we might grow up. We, there's a body of Christ that's to come into the full stature of the Lord. So it's not so much pointing the finger and saying, shame on you, you're not coming to church. It's more along the lines that that's a heart issue. Why are you not coming to church? Is something going on in your life? Can I pray with you? Can I talk to you about it? Tell me about your walk with Jesus. Tell me what's going on with your life right now. Because I can tell you, when you're really walking close to the Lord, nobody's got to check on you to see if you're coming to church. 
You understand what I'm saying? You're just going to come. But we have, we have things like that. And I thank the Lord that uh, He has people in our lives that He can send you know, to, to check on us, so to speak. We are our brother's keeper. So I want to read, uh, let's keep reading in 26 through uh, 28 to start with. And this is a passage on apostasy. There's no getting around it. We talked about it in chapter 6, and we're talking about it here again in chapter 10. For if we sin willfully after that, we have received the knowledge of the truth. There remains no more sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Now, this is right on the heels of keeping a good profession, right? Holding fast, provoking one another to love and good works that we would not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And the very next Scripture is about apostasy. Now, the word apostasy is not used. Remember back in chapter 6 we studied it? You're not going to look through your Bible in the English, find the word apostasy, just like you're not going to find rapture or trinity. But they're teachings of the Scriptures nonetheless. And what you will find, and let's look at it, keep your spot mark there, and turn back to chapter 6, in verse 4. This is another clear passage on apostasy. Hebrews 6, 4-6. through 6. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good Word of God and the powers of the world to come. We laid the case out that's speaking of a believer. There's no getting around it. A partaker with the Holy Ghost means he's an associate or participant with the Holy Ghost. This is not somebody that just came under conviction of sin. This is not someone that mentally agreed that the Gospel was true and that Jesus rose from the dead. This is someone who tasted, who knew, and was a participant. They were enlightened, okay? Partakers of the Holy Ghost. Tasted of the good Word of God and the powers of the world to come. If they shall fall away. Now that's the word. If you were to look up fall away in your concordance, it would be the Greek word apostasy. Okay? So that's where we get it. Apostate, someone that apostatized, and apostasy. Fall away is the word that's used. If they shall fall away, it's impossible, he says, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. He's going to be very, very similar in this warning here in chapter 10. So you can turn back there. But when, when it says, for if we, he includes himself in this, the author of the book, if we sin willfully. Well, wouldn't you say every sin is willful? If I just tonight decide to watch something on TV that I shouldn't watch, it's a willful sin. I chose to do it. In that sense, all sin is willful. But he is really very clearly and obviously talking about apostasy here. You can, we can tell it by the context and by the Scripture. Yes, all sin is willful, but he's speaking of apostasy right here. And it says, after they have received the knowledge of the truth. After we have received the knowledge of the truth. That word knowledge there is the same type of word that's used in John 17 where Jesus said, this is eternal life that they may know Thee, the only true God. So again, we're not talking about somebody that was familiar with Christianity, that could quote the Ten Commandments, that could talk about the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. This is someone that had received the knowledge 
of the truth. That means full and complete understanding. That's literally what it means. And so, uh, this man is describing someone that falls away. And it says it's impossible, he said in chapter 6, to renew them to repentance. Okay? Why? Because there remains no more sacrifice for sins. We need to think about it for just a moment. And again, we talked about it in such great, great detail when we studied chapter 6, but I want to just hit on it again just briefly. It's not, we don't have to live in fear, okay, that we're going to, quote, lose our salvation. That's nowhere found in the scripture. I'm just going along as a Christian, living my life, not perfect, but, you know, just living my life as a Christian. Woke up one day and guess what? I lost my salvation. Like I lost my car keys or I lost my checkbook. I don't believe that that's possible. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. The Bible does talk about in scriptures like this, and we'll look at a few more, that someone can fall away. They can turn from the faith. It's not a specific sin. This is what I really want to stress. I've taught in prisons for so many years, and this kind of question comes up. And I've taught through Hebrews in the prisons, and it always comes up. You know, there's the once saved, always saved, and then there's this camp over here. And I say, well, let's just try to be biblical. Let's just look at what the Bible says. And the Bible talks about apostasy. We don't have to get up every day and say, okay, I just lied to my boss. Therefore, oh no, am I going to lose my salvation? No, what you do is you say, God, I lied to my boss. Forgive me. Boss, I lied to you. Forgive me. Right? The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. That's for believers. That's for Christians. Alright? We confess it. So we're not talking about losing salvation in that instance. Apostasy is different. Apostasy is much bigger. Much more uh, detrimental. Much more serious. Because the blood of Jesus Christ will cleanse us from all sin. But you can't enter to heaven in unbelief. And apostasy is a turning from the faith. What I believed at one time, I no longer believe. That's the seriousness of it. It's the magnitude of it is way bigger than, you know, I've I watched some stuff on TV for the past three months. I haven't been going to church. I haven't read my Bible in three months. And I would say, well, read your Bible. You know what I mean? God wants to speak to you. Get back in the faith. Don't drift any further away. But that in and of itself is not apostasy. Going to sit in a bar and drinking a Budweiser is not apostasy. Turning from the faith is apostasy. Where you no longer believe that profession. You're not holding that profession of faith anymore. You've turned from it. After you receive the knowledge of truth. And he says, there, here's the deal. There remains no more sacrifice for sins. So if I, don't, if, I don't know, if I no longer believe in Jesus Christ. And all through Hebrews, we've talked about that sacrifice, right? Offered Himself once. Uh, it's the final sacrifice for sins. If I turn from that sacrifice as being the, the sacrifice and the payment for my sins and the sins of the world, and I no longer believe that, there is no other sacrifice. There remains no sacrifice for sins. So where would that man now go? You understand what I'm saying? That is the perdition. That is the falling away. That is the apostasy. They're not holding fast the faith in Jesus Christ. Now, it might be evident by a lot of sin in your life. 
that you didn't used to do. Certainly. Okay? And you used to, as a Christian, you wouldn't have been caught dead in a bar, and now you own a bar. You know what I mean? Certainly there will be fruit of that, but the apostasy itself is the turning from the faith. It's not any one isolated sin. It's not a lot of sins together. It's not really gross sins. It's not even sin for a long period of time in the life of a believer. It's turning from the faith. And all of those things can lead to it. That's why there's an exhortation today while it's called today. That's why there's an, that why there's an exhortation don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Draw near to God. Don't drift away from Him. Hold fast your profession of faith. Don't be wavering and wishy-washy about it. Hold fast. Be steadfast. You know? That song we used to sing, I believe in Jesus. I believe He is the Son of God. I believe He died and rose again. I believe He paid for us all. And I believe He's here now. Right? That's a profession of your faith. I believe it. And we need to hang on to it even when we might feel weak or tired or afflicted or beat down. And those things happen. But... Uh, this person here that's described, it says that uh, they had received the knowledge of the truth. He says we, he says if we sin willfully, again, I believe he's talking about apostasy, what remains for this person now? Okay? There remains no more sacrifice for his sins because he turned from the only sacrifice and rejected it. Rejected Christ and His sacrifice on the cross as being the, pen, the payment for the penalty of the sins of the world, which would include His own. I don't believe that anymore. I used to believe that. I don't believe it anymore. I think it's a rare thing, by the way, and I've said that before. I don't think, I don't think it's just people are apostatized right and left. I think people backslide and they come back. I think some people were never saved to start with, and then it becomes evident that they were never saved. But this is a possibility. We see in the Scriptures that people were enlightened and partakers of the Holy Ghost and so forth, and they turn from that sacrifice, Jesus Christ. Here's what remains for them. They'll face the Lord as judge, not as Savior and friend and Redeemer and Messiah. And they won't stand before the Lord because they don't believe in Him. Just because they don't believe doesn't mean they're not going to stand before Him. Okay? You've got a world full of people that don't believe. They're still going to stand before the Lord. And whether, whether they stand before Him as the righteous and the redeemed, robed in the righteousness of Christ, and he'll say, well done, a good and faithful servant, enter into the joys of the Lord. Or he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. And we could have known. That's the sad part is everybody could know him. He died for every one of us. Here's what remains for these apostates. Here's what remains. But at verse 27, a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. And so when we're born again, we're, we become part of the family of God and even a friend of Jesus. And Christ is our brother and the, God's our Father. These are terms that are used in relationship with the Lord. But He calls this person here or these people adversaries, enemies. This is what He calls them now. So they went from, from being part of this family of God Something led them away. I don't know what it was, but I would say it was these things like forsaking the assembly. These things like not drawing near and so forth. Drifting. It doesn't just happen overnight. Somebody doesn't go from being on fire for God to being apostate in one night. Something happened that led to that. It could be false doctrine. It could be uh, justifying their sin. They like their sin. They entered into some immorality and they like it. 
And so they're going to build their doctrine around it to justify their immorality. And they get way away from God. It happens. Okay? I'm not saying it happens every day, but it happens. But they're now counted as an adversary of the Lord. That's what God calls them. We don't want to be there, y'all. We don't have to be there. We don't live in fear of this. It's sobering, but it's not, it's not a fear. Okay? We, we're accepted in the Beloved. We're accepted. If you sinned a thousand times today, you're still accepted in the Beloved. You know what you can do? You can confess and so can I a thousand times today. And every single time, He'll be just as merciful as He was the thousandth time. If somebody sinned against me a thousand times, after about six or seven, I say, that's about enough. You know what I mean? But we come daily and He's just as kind and just as compassionate, just as merciful. The blood of Jesus is just as effectual to work in the cleansing and He's just as sincere about it. Like, I love you. You're my child. And He cleanses us and washes us. Now get up and go and sin no more. He's just as uh, loving about it and sincere about it. And I thank the Lord for that. So, well, let's keep reading a little bit more. Okay? This is what he's done. This is this is a description of what the apostates done. All right, well, let's let's look at this real quickly. It says in verse twenty, he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. And you would say, now wait a minute, I thought God was always merciful. He was, he is, and was always merciful. That's part of his nature or his character, the attributes of God. What he's talking about there, and I looked it up and I studied this, y'all. We just don't have time to read it. If you would like to study it sometime. I'm going to give you a passage here. When he's talking about dying under the hand of two or three witnesses, look at Deuteronomy chapter 17 and read verses 2 through 6. And that's specifically speaking there. And there might not, there might have been other sins as well. But this specifically was speaking about punishment for idolatry. Somebody comes home and they've been caught worshiping an idol. And he says, You really search the matter. It's not just a suspicion, and you find out it's true. They really have been idolatrous and worshiping idols and participating in this. And then it says, when the thing is established, and you know it like a court case, like it's a fact. We're not just on a witch hunt. They're idolaters. It says, then there was the punishment about them dying, you know, being stoned. And it says, let him that caught him in the act be the first to put their hands upon him. How about that? And... Uh, it's not the fact that they sinned. It's the fact that they, they turned from the Lord. Even in that case, they're worshiping a false god. And if you read about other sins, for example, even under the law of Moses, read Leviticus chapter 6, 1 through 7. And it talks very clearly, if a man commits this sin, then he can bring this offering to the priest and his sin will be forgiven him. And the animal sacrifice will count as an atonement or a covering for a sin. God was merciful. So it's not like just even under the law of Moses that somebody's out and all of a sudden they do they commit some sin where the, the Lord has said, Thou shalt not, and they commit it, boom, they drop over dead. No mercy. It wasn't that way. David committed adultery and murder. You understand what I'm saying? There was still mercy. So he's talking about somebody that's turned from the faith when he says, and under the law of Moses, people died... Uh, without mercy under two or three witnesses. They, they've turned from the Lord. And the Lord's the one that gives mercy. Right? So that's where they're going to receive their mercy from, but they don't receive it because they don't want the Lord anymore. Remember the key again. There remains 
No more sacrifice for sin. They've shunned the Lord. They've spurned Him. And they've spurned His mercy. And they refused Him. There's a rebellion in it, y'all. There's a a rebellion in apostasy. There's a rebellion where we're bucking up against the Lord. I don't believe this garbage anymore. It's serious, okay? It's serious. And they turn for the Lord, so there's no more sacrifice for sins. They've rejected that sacrifice. And they've rejected God's only means of salvation and forgiveness. That's what an apostate has done. Let's keep reading. Of how much, verse 29, of how much sorrow or worse punishments suppose ye, comparing to, the, to those that live under the Levitical times, how much more sorrow, <coughs> sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy. Here's the three things he's done. Who had trodden underfoot the Son of God and counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was, past tense, sanctified, an unholy thing hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. It's almost like a rhetorical question. Look, if this is how it was under the Levitical system, when those were types and shadows and the Christ hadn't even come yet, but now He's come and we have a literal record of His death, His burial, His resurrection. His holy blood has been shed. It's the temple veil has been rent and so forth. And, and He's ascended on high. He's our intercessor at the right hand of the Father. And the Gospel being, being preached around the world and, and how much sore or worse do you think it's going to be for someone who has done these three things that are listed here? And we're going to talk about them for just, just a moment. And uh, I believe, again, this is describing the willful sin of apostasy. All right? They've sinned against the sinless Son of God and, and His blood that was offered up for the redemption of sinful men. Here's what they did. They trod underfoot. You know what it means to try to trample? Okay? Underfoot the Son of God. He's precious, right? The Bible says, in, I think in 1 Peter, Him whom having not seen yet you believe, and He's precious in your sight. He's valuable. In fact, there's nothing more valuable. His blood, there's nothing more valuable. We were purchased, our eternal souls were purchased by the precious blood of the Lamb. And this person is trodden underfoot the Son of God. I was reading a commentary about, and, and I don't exactly, exactly know the time frame, but during a time of persecution of Christians in, in Japan, one of the, uh, it's a historical record, what, what they did, they took a crucifix with Jesus on it. I don't know how big it was. They laid it on the ground, and they commanded people to trample on Jesus on the cross, to trample Him. It was obviously uh, it was a great time of persecution against Christians. It's in the in the record says that people that didn't believe in Jesus had no problem. They'd walk up, do a tap dance, stomp all over Jesus on the cross, and they they had no problems obeying what the government told them to do. But it says the true believers they couldn't do it. They wouldn't do it and refused, and they were killed for not doing it. But it, it's just a picture of trampling underfoot. I know it's a picture. But just thinking about it, the true believers couldn't do it. They died before they would do it. And the ones that didn't know the Lord had no problem at all doing that. Now, Moses, when it talks about the, the dying under the hands of Moses, the two or three witnesses, he represents a divine justice, okay? And, and God's justice is always going to be perfect. He never has to get even, 
The Lord's not ever trying to get even. You see all these movies where somebody's family was hurt and then you know, they go after them with a vengeance and they kill like 75 people. They're going to mow them all down and get vengeance. Uh, God, God's justice is always just. It's measured out. It's calculated. It's part of His character and nature. He doesn't go overboard. He doesn't just lose it. You know what I mean? And, and lose control. Everything is very calculated. The, the righteousness and truth are the foundations of your, your throne. He is established upon justice and truth and so forth. And He's going to mete out that judgment very mercifully, but there are times it will come. Okay? It's going to come. And so here's what this person has done. All right, we said they trod underfoot the Son of God. Number two, uh, in verse 29, and counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing. Can you imagine? Is there anything more holy than the Lord and anything more holy than the blood that was shed on the cross? It was sinless. He never sinned. Our blood is Adam's. You know, that, that nature of Adam that we have. And yet Christ comes as this holy Son of God and this Lamb of God, sinless. And it says he, he counts it as an unholy thing. That apostate, when he talks about the blood of Jesus, when he thinks about the blood of Jesus, when he considers the blood of Jesus, he esteems it in his own heart, how you value something, like how I value my wife, or how I value my children or whatever. He values that as an unholy thing. Now that's not just somebody that as a Christian slipped into a sin. You understand what I'm saying? Or maybe in a pattern of sin for a while. We don't have to do any of that. But that's different than this. He counts the blood of Jesus wherewith He was, past tense, sanctified, an unholy thing. I think it's very hard to make the case that a person cannot apostatize. We see it right here. I'm going to look at another Scripture there. We're going to come back. But let's look at, uh, keep your spot there and turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to look at verse 21. Well, let's back up to verse 20. 2 Peter 2.20. Here's another one. If you're taking notes and you want, you know, to say this is, a, this is something that comes up periodically or maybe you just want to know it yourself. You ought to write down the scriptures from Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, Hebrews 10, what we're studying tonight. Here's another one in 2 Peter 2 20. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, how? Through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You think that's a saved person? Or somebody just visited church for a while? They've escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If, it says, after this, they are entangled, again entangled therein, and overcome. Sometimes we can get entangled with sin, but we don't have to be overcome by it. We can always turn to Jesus to, to deliver us and to forgive us and to cleanse us. They are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them to not to have known the way of righteousness then after they have known it, to turn from it, from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed 
to her wallowing in the mire. They returned to it. They didn't just go commit a sin. They returned to it. This is what I want. This is what I want. And they've gone back to it. So we can, you can turn back to Hebrews 10. But the second thing, so they, they trod underfoot the Son of God. They counted the blood uh, of Christ wherewith they were sanctified an unholy thing. And the last thing it says in verse 29, and done despite unto the Spirit of grace. The Spirit of grace is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that illuminated all of us and any man that's going to be saved. It has to be the Holy Spirit illuminating us, sort of that, light, that spiritual light bulb coming on. You understand what I'm saying? To where we understand I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. Christ is that Savior. He can save me. I need to give my life to Jesus. Please save me. Lord, I give myself. Thank you. You know, the whole, all of it. The Holy Spirit is the one that takes a carnal man blinded just in sinful darkness. The whole world lies in the embrace of the wicked one, right? Uh, you were sometimes darkness, but now we're light in the Lord. The Holy Spirit is the one that illuminates us to the truths of the Gospel and the Word of God into our own sinfulness that all have sinned and come short of God's glory and all includes me. The Holy Spirit takes that from being a mental exercise of reading through the Bible to being fallen on my face before God because He made it real in my heart. The Holy Spirit and only the Holy Spirit can do that. When He's come, He reproves the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He brings that conviction. And so here's this apostate who's done this with the blood of Jesus and trampled the Son of God, and he's done despite, which means insulted the Spirit of grace. It means the utmost contempt and blasphemy. That's what the word means. When it says they've done despite unto the Spirit of grace. The utmost contempt and blasphemy. And, and y'all, we should highly esteem the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Trinity and be thankful for His working in our lives and His ministry. He's the Spirit of truth. He guides us into all truth. He's the one that seals us unto the day of redemption. And so many things about the Holy Spirit. He's the eternal Spirit. He's no lesser uh, God than the Father or Jesus. And this person has counted His... Uh, done despite unto the Spirit of grace. And so this is an... Uh, very clear picture here, y'all, of someone that has turned from the faith or fallen away from it. Doesn't even say they just quit coming to church for a while. They fell away from the faith. So it's very detailed what an apostate is, what has he done, what resulted in this fiery indignation and judgment that he now faces. Why there there's no remains no more sacrifice for sins for that person because he turned from it. And so let's let's keep reading and we'll, we'll try to finish this uh, tonight. In verse 30, For we know Him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto Me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, and th these are quoted from um, Deuteronomy 32, 35, and also Psalm, Psalm 94, 1. But it says, uh, and again, the Lord shall judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And it's almost like there should be a little Selah right there. You know, He wants us to think about it. Okay? So fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And when, for somebody to stand before the Lord, not as Savior, like I said, in Friend and Redeemer, 
but to stand before him as judge. He's our advocate, but we reject him. We didn't want him to be our advocate. He's our friend and the friend of sinners, but we didn't want him to be our friend. So the only way we're going to stand before him after we die on this earth, a lost man is going to stand before him as judge. And that picture that's given in Revelation chapter 20, the great white throne judgment, it says, And I saw a great white throne and him that sat upon it. And it says, From whom the heavens and earth fled away. It's not this warm, fuzzy thing. Welcome, in, you know, welcome into the, the arms of Jesus. Like we're going to be one day. Amen? It's, it's a fearful thing. And it doesn't have to be because He's the Savior. He could he'd be their Savior. And, and the apostate Savior if they had, they had learned from it. So I want to read just a little bit more. He says, But call to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of afflictions, partly while you were made a gazing stop, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while you became companions of them that were so used. For you had compassion on me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and enduring substance. And so what he's, what he's saying in here is in light of all that, he goes, we're, we're not going to be like those people. We're, we've described an apostate here and described what it is to apostatize and how it happens, but that's not us. And he says, call to remembrance. And says there were afflictions, there were hardships, there were pains. These people literally went through them. Now every believer goes through a certain measure of persecution. We do. These people did too. And we talked about it. They were persecuted by their Jewish brothers because they had accepted Christ and the Jews rejected Christ. And they were persecuted by the world and Rome that was of that day. And they, they took joyfully, it says, the spoiling of their goods. No, it says they were made a gazing stock. It says in verse 33, that means a spectacle. It's the Greek word is a theater. They were a joke. They were a show. Whether they were, uh, they just come and take their stuff from them or they would throw them in prison or like I uh, forgot which of the Roman emperors would take the, the, uh, the Christians and light them on fire and light up his garden out front with burning Christians because it was like, because it was like a entertainment to him, or throwing the Christians to the lions. The world looks at with utmost contempt, not at somebody even Christian in name only, but somebody that really knows Christ and walks this thing out and lives it. Okay? And he's saying, Look, you, you had compassion on me, you know, you prayed for me, and so forth. And uh, let's just keep reading. We've just got a few more verses. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence or your faith, which has great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. That's when we receive, right? We receive the promise of God after. We haven't received it yet. There's more coming. Okay, there's more coming. God has promised us more. And we're going to see more in the next couple of chapters of this book. But um, you don't want to quit before you get it. Have you ever thought before sometimes how, how close you might be and, and you don't want to give up on the brink of it? In other words, we don't see it. We don't see. You might be in the longest trial or the hardest trial of your life and you're literally thinking, I don't think this is ever going to end. 
and it might end tonight. You understand what I'm saying? It might be we're raptured tonight or that answer comes and God doesn't want us to quit. And the author of this epistle by the Holy Spirit is admonishing the saints of God that would include us. You're right there. Don't give up now. You're closer than you were. What does it say in Romans 13? For now is our salvation nearer than when we first believed. Are we already saved? So what salvation is he talking about? He's talking about the salvation where faith is going to end in sight. And all of this tribulations and afflictions and turmoil and heartache, all of it is going to go away and be gone, never to be brought back up again. That is a, like a completion of our salvation and the new bodies we're going to receive. That's all part of it. And so now we're nearer. And he says, don't cast away your confidence. Don't be like those apostates, for ye have need of patience. He goes, for verse 37, for yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. There's no maybes about that. There's no ifs. It may, it may come. It's not cloaked in a bunch of mysterious kind of language like some of, what's that, Nostradamus or whatever, that prophet from years ago that and say, oh wow, this guy predicted a lot of things. But he also missed a lot of things. And he also spoke them so vaguely, you could pretty much fulfill them with any, any way you wanted to. He's saying, a little while, and he that shall come, that's Jesus, will come and will not tarry. The Lord's coming. Yes. He's not telling us exactly when, but we know it's future because it's not past. It's, it's coming, okay? He's coming. And we're, to, we're to, uh, to live as though He's coming. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, and that to me is that, that falling away, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back under perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. F.B. Meyer said this, and I love F.B. Meyer. He says, don't miss the harvest of your tears. Anybody in here cried as a believer? Cried because of what you're going through? Cried because um, you don't things aren't right? You don't like the way things are? The heartache as a Christian, as a believer, you love Jesus and you're loved by Him, but you've cried and it's not gotten better and you're continuing on in it. He's, and he says, don't miss the harvest of your tears. Don't throw away the tr your trust. It carries with it a great reward in the world to come. And so God wants us to endure. God helps us to endure. He's not only telling us what to do. And we're going to close and the altar is going to be open here in just a moment. He's not only telling us what to do. He is enabling us to do it and strengthening us to do it. Praise God for that. If it was just orders or even a kind exhortation if there was no power to fulfill it we'd be in trouble but we can do all things through christ who strengthens us and he does strengthen us and it's his good pleasure to give us the kingdom he enjoys doing it finally brethren be strong in the lord and in the power of his might now the just shall live by faith he goes in verse 39 but we are not of them who draw back under perdition i believe he's saying it very confidently he wasn't worried that he was going to fall away. And he wasn't worried that his audience was going to be a bunch of apostates. He says, we are not of them who draw back under perdition. What's the opposite of that? What's the flip side of that? But of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Faith is the answer to that. Faith, the just shall live by faith. That's quoting the Old Testament and New Testament. 
And you and I need to hold fast the profession of our faith. He's not listing a thousand sins not to commit. He's saying hold fast your faith. If we hold fast our faith, He's going to keep us. We're kept by the power of God through faith, as Peter says. Unto salvation. Unto inheritance. It's incorruptible, undefiled. That faith's not a way reserved in heaven for us who are kept by faith, by the power of God through faith. Faith is the key to it, y'all. And the whole next chapter is going to be really exciting. We're going to get into Hebrews chapter 11, that hall of faith that we're going to talk about. And, uh, and it's really going to be a wonderful exhortation. It's going to take us a few weeks to get through chapter 11. It's very long, and I don't want to rush through it. But we're going to start that next week. You can read it this week, and we'll start on it. But William, if you come and, and uh, just begin to worship the Lord, y'all, and... Let's not just rush out. Think about it for a little while. Let the Lord speak to you. We're not living in fear that we're going to fall away. We're keeping our eyes on Jesus. Like we're going to look at in chapter 12. We're looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. He is able to keep us, Jude says, and to present us faultless before His Father's throne with exceeding joy. So let's get before the Lord tonight and and call upon the Lord. Ask Him to strengthen our faith. Ask Him to build up our faith in Him. We don't have to be those that fall away. Paul, Paul says, or whoever wrote the book, we're not those who fall away under perdition, but those to believe to the saving of our souls. And so, Father, we come before You tonight in Jesus' name. And y'all just find a place. Call upon Jesus. Take some real time with the Lord. Uh, based on this message, on this word from Hebrews chapter 10 that God has spoken to us tonight and say, Lord, what are you trying to tell me through this? You might already know. He might have already spoken to you about it. Then just thank Him for it and say, make me that. Make me that man of faith. Make me that woman of faith. Make me that young person of faith, God. I don't want to forsake the assembling of myself. I don't want to draw back under perdition. I want to provoke others to love and good works, God. Especially all the more as we see the day approaching. Lord, You're coming back soon. And as You come, and when You come, we want to be ready. We don't want to be ashamed that You're coming. And Lord, we don't have to be ashamed that You're coming. I pray You'd find us all just right in the heart of of faith. Just right living for God with all of our hearts. Loving Jesus with all of our hearts. Serving the Lord when you come back, Lord. In your word, in your house, among your people, in prayer. I pray you find us that way when you come back, Lord God. We're living in exciting times, God. And I thank you that you've chosen us to be salt and light, God. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, Lord. You've set us apart. You've empowered us by the Holy Ghost. Thank you, Lord, that you don't just tell us what to do. You've made us new in Christ and You've empowered us. And You enable us day by day to do what You've called us to do, Lord. And I thank You for it, Lord God. Just take some time to pray tonight.